So you work in the breast world? Is that what you said? Well, I work in as a doula. Here's a place I never expected to see at KOW, much less been time in. So the best part for me about the story is that, like, it's a room that I, it's a door that I've walked by a million times, and I never thought that it was anything. Yeah, it is not anything. I mean, it is, it's, it's a place where many KOW women have been totally, thoroughly traumatized. This is Zelda Raftery. She's the managing online editor at KOW. And the space she showed me is KOW's electrical closet. It's small, it's dusty, and literally every wall has wire sticking out of it. The closet hums, actually hums, y'all, with electricity. But here's the thing. That closet was also the lactation room for new moms. No. This looks really inappropriate. This right here, this little stool is where I put my pump. And then there was this totally broken chair that is not there anymore. And let's see if we can find some breast milk spatters. Oh yeah, do you see that? What was it like the first time that you were in this room? I was pretty bummed about it, but I also felt really tough. Like, wow, this is, as a mom, like I, I can overcome all these obstacles. I'm a tough, badass mom. So what did you do? So, I mean, you walk in here and you just pump in here and tell your child the size of wean? Or what was the next steps? So, well, that first day, I took a photo of the lactation room because I thought, I thought it was funny, like sad funny. And I posted it to my Facebook account. But then people started commenting on the photo. And I actually thought people were going to say like, wow, Isolde, you're cool. Look at you getting things done. Um, But actually people responded saying like, that's really sad. That's so depressing. I'm so sorry. You got this mama, you know, that kind of a kind of feedback that surprised me. And it actually made me a little bit sad and it made me rethink my initial response to this room. But here's the thing, that lactation room in a buzzing electrical closet, it met the legal requirements. Eventually, KOW moved the lactation room to another space. The stool was replaced with a glider. I've tried it. It's nice. There's a top-of-the-line breast pump and photos of employees' babies adorn the walls. They even have a mini-fridge. Isolde says it's really nice. But that original electrical room opened Isolde's eyes about how moms are treated at work. I think that if anybody actually thought about how would a woman coming back to work with a baby at home how would she want to be treated during this, you know, 45 minutes a day that she spends in a room? How can we honor her? How can we make her feel good? Just as a woman feeling like this is it, this is sexism. And just suddenly everything crystallized for me. Sorry, I'm, I feel like my brain is fuzzing up more from the space. Seriously, I'm kind of over and I'd love to get out of this room personally. So let's That's go. big. Isolde realized sexism doesn't look like some evil woman-hating boss. It looks like men and women not thinking how the workplace functions for every employee. Hmm. Jeannie, you've been really quiet during the story. Well, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I pumped milk in that electrical closet for months, and I don't like talking about it. It was not a good time for me. But Azolda's story is making me realize something. Even when I was going through that, it never occurred to me to tell anybody at work that it was a problem just thought it was one of those things that working moms were supposed to endure. I'm so sorry, Jeannie. 
And you're not alone. So this is honestly pretty common. I mean, I work in the birth world and I can tell you hardly anybody thinks about the needs of new moms when they go back to work, right? So including the moms themselves. And there are reasons for that. We'll get into those reasons. And we'll get into why, if we don't start paying attention to what working moms need, there are terrible consequences for the entire American workforce. That's scary, but don't worry. We've got tactics that you can do to help change things before Azolda's kids are in the workforce. This is Battle Tactics. For your sexist workplace. And yes, your workplace is sexist, bruh. <laughs> even if you can claim no dependence on your tax return. And even if you're a glowing, exhausted new mom. I'm Eula Scott Bino. And I'm Jeannie Yandel. I want a career. That's what I want. And I know there's a lot of people out there that are like, but Michelle, you don't have to choose. You can have it all. Yeah, stop saying that. This is comedian Michelle Wolf telling the truth on her HBO special, (laughs) Nice Lady. And even if we do try to have it all, even if a woman out there definitely wants it all, we've put up too many obstacles in your way to make it possible. It's like, oh, congratulations, you're having a baby? Great, couple things. We're gonna need you to get that car accident of a body back to work as soon as possible because this is America and we don't think you need time to recover. Also, you should breastfeed. It's what's best for the baby, but don't do it in public, you pig. Do it in the old janitor's closet underneath the bridge with the rest of the breastfeeding trolls. And don't ask to take time off from work when your kids are sick. We'll think you're not dedicated. Also, why are you such a bad mom? By the way, your salary is just enough to cover the cost of childcare. And we know you're exhausted. You don't really know who you are anymore. You're trying to balance your old life and your new life, but quick, go have sex with your husband. He's about to leave. He doesn't understand what you're going through. Quick, go now. And sweetie, smile. (laughs) Oh my God, that's so real. That's just like painfully real. And you know who really, really knows that? Working moms who research working motherhood. So let's just start by summing up what you think the experience of being a working mom in the United States is. How would you sum that experience up? (laughs) So this is Bridget Schulte. She directs the Better Life Lab at New America. She's also a journalist and the author of the book Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. Uh, Exhausted, you know, canary in the coal mine. Um, It's really, really hard. We make it very difficult. You know, we like to say in the United States, we're we're a country of family values. You hear that all the time. And yet we are the only advanced economy that does not have a paid family leave program. Um, Most other countries have at least paid maternity leave. Virtually every other country on earth does. We do not. Jeannie, did you have any clue how hard it was going to be to be a working mom before you had your daughter? I mean... I had some idea because a lot of my friends here at work had babies before I did. And (laughs) I remember asking them how things were going and they would pause and say, I'm just I'm really, really tired. (laughs) It scared the crap out of me. I have to be honest. Like it was one of the reasons I waited before having my daughter. Wow. I mean, did you think about what it would be like to become a working mom and how hard it would be? No, I'm shaking my head because no. So, you know, I was a full-time doula when I became pregnant with my son, and I became a childbirth educator knowing I couldn't be on call with a small child. 
But I didn't once think to research pumping outside of my home, which is required for practically all nursing working moms. Yes. <laughs> and I didn't research any form of childcare. But I'm prepared for my next kid. That's something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll take it. Bridget says we all have blinders on when it comes to our personal lives and work because of our collective inability to end a long, terrible relationship with the notion of the ideal worker. Let's call him Norm. Yeah. Norm first started becoming popular in the 1950s among men in white-collar offices. It became a total point of pride for them to work long, hard hours and be all about work all the time. And there were benefits to being like Norm, too. Men got rewarded with promotions and raises. So, Jeannie, I watched the first few seasons of Mad Men, so I can imagine what Norm is like. Okay, so he <laughs> works crazy hours in an all-male office, never gets distracted by his family. What family? Exactly. Oh, and a fake name, for sure. And probably an alcohol problem. Totally. <laughs> and actually, Bridget Shelty says it was possible in the 50s and 60s to have Norm support the family while Mrs. Norm took care of the house and kids. Because you could support a whole family on one paycheck back then. Well, that all fell apart in the 1970s. You can't really make it on one income because there, there is no family wage anymore. I mean, you know, wages have been stagnating since the 1970s. And then the 1980s happened. Work hours started to go up in the 1980s, and they started to go up for really high-wage workers. A lot of that came from Silicon Valley. You know, uh, they have T-shirts there, 90 hours a week and loving it, and, you know, coffee and and no sleep, I'm I'm in heaven. And at the same time, there was, you know, Wall Street was going all mergers and acquisitions, and you had people sleeping under their desk to do deals. So you had sort of like the, the hot parts of the economy working these crazy hours, and then you had all these management gurus kind of looking. It's like, well, look, well, maybe that's what we all need to be doing. Now, let's fast forward to the future. No, I mean, to 2018. <laughs> the to quote Kanye, we're in the now. Yeah. Uh, we still talk about Norm in 2018 as though he's the kind of worker we'll all need to be. Get into work early, stay late. Don't let your personal life interfere with your job. What personal life? Exactly. So what does that mean for working moms? Bridget says it means a couple of things. One, People think moms can never be the ideal worker. Yeah. Bridget told us about this study out of Stanford University. And so they sent out a series of literally identical resumes. And the only thing that was different was sort of a signifier about whether you had kids or not. Signifiers. Stuff on your resume like vice president of the PTA, which suggests you have kids, versus Peace Corps volunteer, which doesn't. Because clearly you have time to travel. Which moms don't. No. People rated the mothers as less competent, uh, less uh, able to do the job, more emotional, um, less likely to be hired. They were going to hire, if they did hire them, they would have offered them a much lower salary. Okay, so women who point out on resumes that they're moms, they get penalized, right? Mm -hmm. But what happens to men who do the exact same thing, you know, point out that they're fathers? Oh, well. Interesting thing is the absolute opposite happened for men. If there was a signifier that a man was a father, he actually got a fatherhood bonus. He was ex- he was seen as more committed and that he was going to be more this provider. He was seen as more competent and he was actually offered more money. And so why that study is important is that, that we actually see that in economic data. When you look at the wage gap between men and women, that a lot of it is really a gap between what mothers earn, sort of the motherhood penalty, and a fatherhood bonus. And that all goes back to these very powerful gender norms that we have, that men should be the 
the one going out and, to, and working and achieving in the public sphere, and that women should be the ones who take primary responsibility of home and caregiving. Okay. I'm stopping for a moment because my instinct is telling me to crawl under the table I'm sitting at, but I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> well, it's depressing and it's 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 infuriating. And the thing about it is we, we kind of know this and yet nobody seems to know what to do about it or how to change. Somebody's got to be norm to do well at work and somebody's got to keep the kids alive. The future workforce. Right. And because the deck is stacked against working moms becoming norm, they get defaulted to Mrs. Norm, even though they also work. So they still end up taking on most of the domestic labor. And as a result, one estimate found working moms with kids under six, that's you and me, Eula, Mm -hmm. put in about 98 hours a week between their jobs and domestic work. Most people in opposite-sex couples are in what they call neo-traditional relationships, where the man is still the primary breadwinner, maybe does more work at, at home than, than his father did, but moms are still the primary caregivers, and they're trying to cram work along into it. Bridget wrote a whole chapter about this in her book. The chapter's called The Stall Gender Revolution, but Bridget has another name for it. I called it my rage chapter <laughs> about how angry I was at how things had gotten so unequal. But it's that way for so many couples, even those who want to have those equal partnerships because our systems, our structures, and our culture really push people back into those traditional roles. It's almost like we're telling working mothers, okay, you can work, but you better figure out how to do it. That makes total sense. That's her rage chapter. Total sense. But Bridget says there's another thing keeping us in this terrible relationship with Norm, the ideal worker. The people who can make big, top-down changes, the people who run our businesses and government, are men who grew up with a dad at work and mom at home. Now, they're adults, and many of their wives don't work. So they don't really see a problem with Norm. Our problem isn't in their scope. So for one thing, you've kind of got this disconnect where people think, well, this is what I had. And we do tend to think that what we had was best. So, you know, and they maybe they grew up watching Father Knows Best and Leave it to Beaver. And that's just sort of, quote unquote, normal, even though the research shows that that's not been normal for anything other than the two decades after the Second World War. Most families have always been working families. Our national relationship with Norm the Ideal Worker doesn't just hurt working moms, though. Bridget told us that most of the people who take unpaid family medical leave in the U.S. need it to take care of themselves. Because they're so burnt out from working. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So there are huge consequences if we don't think about how we work and how we care for ourselves. Bridget told us about a new book called Dying for a Paycheck. Oh, that's a terrifying name. Yeah. It's by a group of researchers who looked at more than 200 studies on stress and health and work. Simply the way we work is causing so much stress, they argue, that the stress is leading to so much sickness that it's also becoming one of the most expensive parts of our healthcare system and leading to 120,000 excess deaths a year. That's why Bridget Schulte called working moms canaries in the coal mine. Our attachment to Norm, the ideal worker, and our push to put work before everything else is killing us. Man, that is so depressing. (laughs) But the reality is there are a lot of working moms who are trying to make the best out of a really difficult situation. As much as motherhood and children is fulfilling, so is work. And, you know, people need a lot of people need both. This is Angela Garbez. She's a food writer and author here in Seattle. She's also a working mom who is not trying to be Norm the ideal worker. 
When Angela became pregnant with her first daughter, she was waiting tables. That's a service job that does not guarantee maternity leave. But she and her husband came up with a plan. Right. Angela was going to take three months off, then work nights waiting tables while her partner worked days. And then, after a year, Angela was going to go to grad school. Boom. But it didn't work out that way. Because <laughs> one week after I gave birth, I got a phone call from The Stranger, which was the, is the News Weekly here, um, that I used to freelance for. And they said... We're going to create a full-time staff food writer position. Are you interested? So you explain what The Stranger is, and it's, you know, it's sort of got a, it has a big cultural presence here in Seattle. When you got that phone call, you'd been a freelancer, but when you got that call, when they said, we created a job, would you like that permanent full-time job? What did you think? I thought, this is a no-brainer because (laughs) who knows what's going on in the media landscape, but I knew that that call would probably never happen again. So... I leapt at it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you got the call when your baby was a week old. Yes. How old was the baby when you started the job? She was eight weeks old. I had no idea what I was in for. You know, I almost think like if I had known, if it hadn't been my first baby, I don't know that I would have done it. I didn't. I was unprepared for what the reality of being a working, a full time working mother would be like. Hmm. Yeah. And it was really hard. (laughs) How did the work of being somebody who wrote about restaurants, like, how did that work with, I'm saying the word work 85 times, but like, (laughs) you have the work of writing about restaurants, you have the work of being a new mom, like, how did those two things fit together? Not very well (laughs) at the beginning. I would sometimes, you know, go out to dinner after I put her to bed, which was exhausting. And sometimes my husband would put her to bed for me, but I would still have to come home and pump and it was just... Just logistically challenging. And I realized, though, in that something else, it it did benefit me work-wise because after several months when I just felt stressed and kind of terrible all the time and I thought this, I don't think this should have to be this hard. Right. And I started to be able to take ownership of this is my job. I shape the coverage. I decide what I write about. And I it made me question why why do we only really mostly review restaurants at dinner time? and service and all of that when we eat many different ways. Mm. You know, you can bring your desk lunch, but if you're anything like me, it's gone by 10.30 (laughs) a.m. And then I'm ready for a second lunch at 12.30 or 1. And especially when you're breastfeeding because you're just hungry all the time. (laughs) You're supposed to have 500 extra calories a day when you're breastfeeding, 300 extra a day when you're pregnant. There you go. Yeah. Mm. This This is what I tell myself every night when I have cake. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and, and it's real. There is a biological scientific reason behind this, it, and it's real. It's very real. But it made me wonder, like, what what do people do for lunch, and why don't we talk about that? Hmm. I realized, like, we nourish ourselves throughout the day. We don't just eat out at night. People eat breakfast out. People go to cafes, and cafes were serving better food than just sort of a sad wrapped sandwich or a plastic tub salad. It was it served two purposes. One, it made my life easier (laughs) to go and review a place that was serving lunch or brunch or breakfast. And also it took some of that pressure off to be working at night. Hmm. And it really diversified the coverage because usually, you know, people will spend a lot more on a big night out. But, you know, we're looking for value a little bit more during the day. But that doesn't mean that food can't be great. Um, And you might, you know, eat almost more adventurously. So, yeah, I it allowed me to actually kind of take control of the situation after being in a low place for a long time. Yeah. So at one point you decided to talk about, to like research and to kind of do a food 
you know, review of breast milk. Why? Um, because I was thinking about food all the time. I was eating food all the time. I was writing about food all the time. And I was producing food all the time. And my perspective as a food writer, I thought that it was very, breast milk was, fell in line with my beat. My perspective as a food writer is that food is a reflection of our culture. And I thought maybe breast milk is that too. Huh. And I was also really curious, what was it made of? What was, what did it taste like? What were its textures? And so I just decided to kind of transfer my lens to the first food, as you were saying, Eula. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that article went, like, blew up and went viral, right? Yep. And so what did you think when you saw how the article, like, really spread? Honestly, I was really surprised. I had thought that it would be interesting to mothers and breastfeeding mothers, and it took off. I mean, within 24, 48 hours, it had been shared like 200,000 times. But what the success of the article showed me is that it wasn't just me who had questions like this. There were many, many other people who who wondered about that and who wanted those questions answered. After that article came out, you wrote a lot more about motherhood. You have this book out called Like a Mother, A Feminist Journey Through the Science and Culture of Pregnancy. So as you've been thinking about all of this and writing about all of this, what have you learned about what it is to become a mom in the workplace, in the medical care system, in all of these systems that already exist? Well, we don't know so much. And it's really because we've never valued female reproductive health enough to study it. Mm -hmm. And that carries through to the workplace, to the postpartum period. We are not a society that's set up to support mothers and new parents. Women leave the workforce after you have kids. And you, because one, you feel like you can't keep up. So you might, or maybe you want to spend that time with your children, which you should be allowed to do because that's work. And then when you want to re-enter the workforce, you're passed over because you've, you've lost out on years of experience. So, you know, people aren't interested in retaining mothers. Um, And then when you get back into the workforce, you know, you sometimes can get rolled, right? Like you're expected, you know, like having a schedule and having to go pick up your kid at daycare or childcare is not that's seen as a liability, right? You're you're seen as a liability for being a mom because you can't be present all the time. Mm-hmm. So that's the standard of what work is. Um, all the time. Yeah. So you had this amazing arc of, you know, of having a new baby and falling into the stranger and then kind of, you know, making the job work for you. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that listeners of and bosses could think about in terms of, you know, making more jobs more inclusive for moms? Right. Yeah. What do you think workplaces can learn from from how you made your job work from you? Well, to see motherhood as a value in the workplace. Right. And maybe they are maybe mothers are not able to give you the same level of time as, you know, a 21 year old. Right. Who doesn't have any family commitments. Um, but what mothers can no give you is, <laughs> is, you know, efficiency the ability to multitask, right? Creative thinking, right? You've got to make things work, right? And the ability to make the best of a objectively terrible situation when, you know, you're covered <laughs> in bodily fluid and like 
the stove exploded and you know like <laughs> someone's screaming right and it might be you right the fact that yep it is the fact that you're able to to turn to make the best out of difficult situations right so i think that to like there are skills that mothers have there's value that parents have that they can bring to the workplace and to be able to i actually i didn't think that this i feel really fortunate because i know it's not this way for everyone but i have felt there's so many ways that motherhood has changed me, but in terms of my working life, it has made me more curious, more open, and I feel in touch with more possibility. And I think if we as employers and as employees could tap into that and value that and find a place for that in the workplace, I think we could all benefit. Angela Garbez, author of the book, Like a Mother, A Feminist Journey Through the Science and Culture of Pregnancy. We have so enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. It was wonderful being on. Thank you for having me here. That was so great. I hope we can reach a point where employers see the value mothers bring to a workplace. Totally. That's definitely the future I want to work towards. And after the break, we'll have tactics to help us get there and to topple Norm, the ideal worker, for good. Stick around. Get out of here, Norm. Okay, we've got the problem laid out. The American workplace isn't set up for working moms or women or any human, really. (laughs) So how do we change that? Bridget Shelty says we got to look at our future workforce and the messages we're giving them about work out of the house and in the house, particularly our daughters. So we might say on one hand, oh, you can be anything that you want. But on the other hand, we make sure that they do the dishes and that they're doing the babysitting. And maybe we don't and maybe our sons are off doing something else. So we have to really think about how we're talking, how we're thinking and how we're transmitting our values to the next generation. Okay, that is really important. But here's a big top down step that both of our guests want a paid family leave policy. There are plenty of countries that do this, you guys. Bridget told us many countries have been doing this since the 19th century. And they're still plenty productive and make plenty of money. Yeah. Another big top-down step, affordable, high-quality child care. Many researchers say it's one of the single best policy solutions for bringing single moms out of poverty and closing the gender wage gap. So for big top-down steps, you're going to need to call your congresspeople. We have a whole guide to this in this week's newsletter. But the basic steps are find their number, dial it, and assert your needs. And also check to see if your work has a program to subsidize child care because some places do. Yes. And both of our guests told us it's really important to know what policies your work has when it comes to parental leave, sick time, and flexible working arrangements. So send an email to HR asking for the info. They know because they're the ones responsible for enforcing the policies. And so these tactics are all about gathering information and educating yourself. Now, though, we've got to deal with this way more complicated problem of pushing back on the notion of the ideal worker. This holds moms and, frankly, it holds all of us back. It really does. Angela Garbus has a couple of ways to do that. First, she says it's ridiculous to pretend we don't have a personal life while we're at work. When I used to work in an office, I spent an inordinate amount of time listening to people talk about their dogs, <laughs> listening to people talk about their Tinder dates, listening to people talk about where they went for dinner. And all of those things are really important to people. Right. Having a child when you're a parent, when you're a mother is arguably the most important thing that's going on in your life. 
we should feel that we can talk about that. And I at times felt like I couldn't or I was bothering people if I was telling them about my baby. Like, who cares about my baby? Right. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. As a species, we have continued to exist and we are continuing to exist because people are having babies. Right. So in a workplace, why hide who we are? Okay, use this tactic judiciously, moms. Remember earlier in the episode, we talked about how moms are often perceived as not being committed enough. Right. It's a little bit of a catch-22 there. But Angela, fortunately, has another tactic for upending the ideal worker norm. Rethink the old idea that networking and team building has to happen over cocktails after work. See if you can create other times for those networking events. Managers, hi, we're talking to you here, too. A lot of us are expected to network but what if you connect and network and socialize if you bring that more into the workday? You know, like have an hour on lunchtime where you're bringing people together or, you know, have a little mixer or time for employees to to talk and socialize, but start that at 3.30 mm-hmm. or 3, right? On, you know, like one day a month is that that's not a lot of time and it could go a long way. And that way you can include people who have schedules that are built around families. We've got one more tactic from Angela Garbas to upend norm. I think men need to man up or woman up <laughs> as, yeah. as it is. You know, I think oh. it's not it's not on women to solve that problem. Right. And I think we need to have conversations around that and expect more of men and men should expect and demand more of themselves. How exactly you do that? I don't know. Oh, I have an idea. Okay. Give the men in your life this podcast episode to listen to. That's easy. Yeah. Share some of the research we talked about today. We're going to create a whole reading list in our newsletter. You can subscribe at KUOW.org slash BTSW. You know, I I did forget one thing. Okay, so one more tactic from Bridget Shelty. <laughs> I did forget one thing that could actually be a little bit more hopeful if I could just oh, mention bring it. it. Bring the whole Okay. Time. Okay. So... You know, when you ask about what individuals can do, I think some of the most hopeful things is the stories of what happened at Lyft or at the New York Times. And that's when groups of mainly working mothers got together and then came up with a plan and presented it and worked within the company. And now and now both of those companies have changed. You know, another really hopeful thing, I spoke with a woman named Michelle Hickox, who's a CFO of a bank in Texas. And when she got there, she realized that there wasn't any paid paid family leave. And she went to the CEO, who is like most traditional CEOs. He was a man with a at-home spouse. And she said, do you know we don't have paid family leave? And he's like, really? He didn't know because it didn't affect him. And so she said, well, don't you think we should? He's like, yeah, we really should. So some of it is just bosses just not being aware or not thinking. And that there there's real hope in banding together and working together to bring change within your organization, too. I'm so glad you added that. Thank you so much, Bridget. Yeah, that's a little bit more helpful. I'm sorry. I yeah. was kind of a little doom and gloomy, <laughs> but I've just, I, I just, I was doing some research and getting some background on this, and I just got all like pissed off again. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Talk about the problems you're facing at work. Ask other women and moms about their issues at work, too. At minimum, you'll figure out who your allies are, and it might spur some actual change. Yes. And if you try any of these tactics, tell us. Email us at battletactics at KUOW.org and we'll send you our Opera of Canaries badge. Opera of Canaries? you got to explain this. <laughs> Opera of Canaries. It's so great. So I went down 
this internet wormhole after Bridget Chelty called working moms canaries in the coal mine, and I found out a group of canaries is called an opera. That is really lovely, Jeannie. <laughs> nice. And these are some gorgeous little canaries on this badge. They're all singing together. Ah, let's keep singing about this issue. It's the only way to change things. For real. Okay, Eula, before we go, I feel the need to say, in this long uphill battle of fighting sexism at work, I'm still willing to pull my load if you're willing to pull yours. Same, Jeannie. Same. Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace is a production of KUOW in Seattle. This episode was produced by Caroline Chamberlain Gomez. Our editor, long-suffering, ever-patient, is Jim Gates. And Brennan Sweeney, with all the meetings, is our managing producer. <laughs> our theme was composed by Kessia Gordon. This podcast was inspired by the book Feminist Fight Club, written by the amazing Jessica Bennett. Keep up the good fight. See you next time. Pew, pew.